For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. Julianne Moore is one of our greatest living actors, an Academy and Emmy Award winner, and the first American woman to be awarded top acting prizes at the Cannes, Berlin, and Venice Film Festivals. She's also an avid collector. In this episode, Julianne joins curator and author Glenn Adamson, curator Dakin Hart, gallerist Jean-Gabriel Mitterrand, and Sotheby's Florent Janiard for a conversation about 20th century designers and the role design plays in our lives. Hello, everyone. My name is Glenn Adamson. I'm a curator and writer based in New York City, uh, working on topics of craft design and contemporary art. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today to a wonderful conversation that we're going to be having about design through the 20th century from Azama Noguchi to Les Lalanne, Francois Xavier and Claude Lalanne. We're going to be talking during the course of the next hour about the impact of designers, as well as thinking about the role design objects play in our lives, how they present an opportunity to live amongst art, combining beauty and function. I'm thrilled to have with me four brilliant guests to discuss this topic. First and foremost, joining us from New York as well is Julianne Moore, Academy and Emmy Award winning actor and collector, the first woman uh, in America to be awarded top acting prizes at the Cannes, Berlin and Venice Film Festivals. Uh, we also have from New York, Dakin Hart, good friend of mine, dear colleague, senior curator at the Osama Noguchi Foundation and Garden Museum, where he oversees the museum's exhibitions, collections, catalog raisonné, archives, and public programming. Now, over in Paris, we also have two guests joining us. First, Jean-Gabriel Mitterrand, art dealer with decades of experience and founder of Gallery Mitterrand, which is dedicated to showcasing contemporary sculpture and historically significant artists who started their career from the 1960s onward. And last but certainly not least, Florent Janiard, head of 20th century design at Sotheby's Europe, a former private dealer based in Paris. Florent is an expert in the work of a number of notable artists and designers from the 1970s, including, of course, Noguchi and Le Lalanne. And now we are going to turn to our topic, uh, which, of course, is an interesting and perhaps unexpected one, thinking about Noguchi, a Japanese-American artist, architect, and designer, whose sculptural work blends the modern with the ancient, the east with the west, maybe a slightly unpredictable combination with Le Lalanne, a French husband and wife duo who created surrealist sculpture heavily inspired by their natural surroundings, especially animal forms. What they both have in common, I think, is a commitment certainly to challenging the boundaries between art and design in the 20th century. So the distinction between aesthetic and purely functional form, but also a, a kind of extraordinary animation and in-depth exploration of materiality. 
So Dakin, if we could, let's go ahead and begin with Noguchi, which means beginning with you. So um, could you introduce us briefly to Noguchi as a cross-disciplinary thinker? I, I'm curious if design is even a word that you like to use around Noguchi. Is it a word he used and is it a word that you think is appropriate to his practice? It is a word that he used simply because he didn't have a choice. Um, the main thing for Noguchi was he just wasn't interested at all in the categories or the labels, the words. He was interested in the work. Um, he was interested in what could be actually be done and was willing to have other people label it after the fact. He didn't like it, but he was uh, willing to have that happen. He knew that it would happen. I think we, we have a very good image of what Noguchi considered to be functional design, a piece that he designed very early. This is called Play Mountain. Um, so this the proposal, simple proposal, was to build a man-made mountain in the middle of Manhattan. Um, this is Noguchi's idea of a functional object. Uh, you can call it what you want, but from his point of view, what he was trying to do was to shape social experience um, and shape our consciousness. And if you want to call that design, great. If you want to call that sculpture, great. Noguchi wasn't an either or person. He was an and person. So I would say that he he would say it has elements of both. Um, and, and he's almost always synthesizing uh, rather than trying to balkanize and categorize. Uh, Julianne, um, I guess you don't get to live on Play Mountain, but you do get to live with quite a few Noguchis <laughs> um, and have a particular interest in his lamps. Can you say a little bit about what yeah. drew you to him and why you admire him so? Well, I think I, I think one of the things that's really important to say about him um, is to talk about what an easy entry point there is to his work. You know, as a person in their early 20s who was trying to learn about design, I would go to little design stores and museums, and that's where you would find an Akari lamp. We'd find a little Akari lamp that you could afford. So that, so there I was, kind of, you know, interested in these objects, and I found this beautiful, light, textured, sculptural piece that could that I could afford to put in my living room. Right. So that led me to kind of learning more about him, learning more about his life and sculptures, and and its contribution to art and design. And I was absolutely fascinated. I don't think that can be underestimated. You know what is. You know, what is the barrier to design? And a lot of the people that I think we, we're talking about today are people who are interested in reaching everybody and who had a, a theory that, that the design was, was to make your life better, to make everyone's life better. And I think that there's no better mm -hmm. example of that than, than Gucci. Yes, absolutely tr intrinsic to his conception of design. Let me just ask you, if I can, Dakin, about the question in Gucci's space. So Julianne just said that he was very interested in accessibility. And one of the ways that he did that was, as you pointed out, through playground design, for example, to try to open up space for people. And I suppose he also thought about space in a rather cosmic sense as being intrinsically related to time. Uh, so very philosophical uh, person, as well as a great uh, maker of physical objects and spaces. Can you say a little bit about his relationship to that whole palette of ideas? Absolutely. And and just to emphasize what Julianne said, you know, Noguchi's point was that sculpture, he said, could be a vital force in our everyday lives if pushed into communal usefulness. Um, and that's really an excellent description, I think, of what he had in mind. Um, I think we've got an image that kind of covers the full range of, um, of the way that Noguchi thought about space. So Space is everything from outer space. So Noguchi is interested in the, everything in the scale of the universe, but he's also interested in the scale of, of reality and nature at, at the level of the cellular structure. But in talking about space, he didn't think about it in the kind of vague mid-century 
way that so much sculpture is discussed. Um, he thought about it in, in a, a sort of a, a cosmic way, as you said, um, a way that just, Noguchi always had a way of thinking around whatever the cliche is. And again, that comes from his sort of general resistance to labeling and categorization. You know, one of the categories that was foisted upon him in a way was that he was this man caught between East and West. And I wonder, Dakin, if you would comment a little bit about his identity as a global practitioner, somebody who was cosmopolitan and thinking about multiple artistic traditions. The most important thing about him is that he is among the first artists and designers that were, we know of who had a truly global consciousness. You know, he was Buckminster Fuller's friend starting in the 20s. Uh, Bucky Fuller coined the great term Spaceship Earth. Pretty much Noguchi's entire career was dedicated to trying to make Spaceship Earth a better sculpture. And uh, by making us love it and feel more connected to it, you know, he really was ecologically minded in that way. You know, as a global practitioner, again, he was always synthesizing. Uh, Bucky wrote a profile of him in 1960 in which he said he thought that Noguchi or believed that Noguchi was the best traveled artist in the history of the world, which in 1960 might have been true. Um, he also compared Noguchi's impact on global culture to that of the airplane, um, saying that Noguchi was a global synthesizer in the same way that the, the airplane had shrunk the globe. Um, you said Noguchi is very philosophical. Another way to put it is that Noguchi was a very, a very conceptual artist from the beginning. Um, you know, he's very well known for being associated with Constantine Brancusi. What's less well known is that he toured the Brancusi show here in New York City at the Bremer Gallery with Duchamp, who was its curator. And uh, Noguchi, I think, is probably the first American artist um, in the 20th century who truly spanned the two trunks of the, the sculptures family tree between the formal and the conceptual. And of course, he also spans into design, uh, which I suppose is what we're meant to be talking about mainly. So can you just say a little bit more about that, Dakin? Julianne also uh, has already mentioned the uh, beautiful and important Akari lamps. How did he get involved with making those and the other functional designs that he did? Well, he really saw no division. There was no barrier or border for him between, again, art and design. He wanted to make things that, that were accessible and would have an impact on people's everyday lives. And he was determined to make sculpture more useful to society and civilization. He wanted to serve a civic purpose. And what better way to serve a civic purpose than by making things that people could actually have in their homes? So the purpose of Akari was to make something that would have the, the natural residence of the sun, but for domestic use, which is a beautiful idea. These coffee tables, the, all of the tables that he made, I always describe these as table, not table, because they're all meant to be somewhat awkward. They're meant to play against the typical formats um, of the tables that we know, coffee tables, dining tables, console tables, end tables. None of them quite fit any given category. Um, and they do things like challenge the hierarchy of tables. Most tables communicate where the head of the table is. Um, Noguchi's tables mostly are, are designed to defeat that kind of hierarchical categorization. Um, Julianne, can you say a little bit about uh, the table, not table situations that uh, Noguchi made? 
Well, first of all, I mean, that piece is exquisite. I mean, it's really, really special. And and the idea that you be able to have something like that in your house with such extraordinary materiality, you know, someone someone who is so in touch with the natural world and brought the natural world like into your house in in this in this table that is also a sculpture. So that and that and it also, if you are uh, interested in in the people who have made these objects, this puts you in in kind of direct conversation with this individual. You know, I I always I feel that way about being a collector. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, this person may have actually, you know, touched this, you know, certainly um, conceived of it. Um, and, and that's an exciting idea. And when we were talking about, the people earlier were talking about that idea of, of global design and how do you kind of put all these different people and, and countries in conversation with one another. That's one of the things that design does. It's like puts you in touch with that maker and with that philosophy. Um, and I love, and, and I love that. I mean, it is, how wonderful to be able to interact with something that is not just a, a, a physical object that you can use, but that it is art and it lives in your house that way. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Can I ask you a question about um, mm-hmm. the prop-like quality of great design? So I was just thinking about what would be the great movie scene to build around that table, you know? And I wonder whether <laughs> spending time on film sets has sort of made you look at design in a different way. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, because there's design for design's sake, you know, in film, but also, you know, know that a great film designer is designing for that particular character, you know? So it's like, what is that, you know, as, as an actor, I'm, I'm always like, well, clothes and objects around us are signifiers. They're telling the world who we are, right? So a great set designer is thinking first and foremost about those people, those characters that live in that house and how that, how they are signifying themselves. So it's a kind of a weird meta process. So it's not necessarily that you are, and then you as an actor come in, of course, and interact with that, with those objects in a way that's a whole other like tangent. Um, but I do feel, but that's, but that's, that's where you get that idea that these, that these objects actually have, have, they, they have meaning and they have personality. And maybe there is something to the idea that Noguchi was making worlds in the way that a great set designer would make a world, albeit not a fictional one, but creating a new set of possibilities and new reality to inhabit. Well, I think so. And I mean, like I said, I think that I think that his objects and his sculptures and the and Akari, everything, the, one of the reasons that it's so appealing is that it has so much soul. It it has it has so much of him in it. It's it's not something that it's not something that you tire of. It's not something that kind of recedes in a room. It's it's a it adds an element of humanity, I think. Well, now that is a great segue to our next topic, <laughs> which is okay, Leila Lan. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to now bring in Jean Gabriel and have him join the conversation. Jean Gabriel, you worked with Leila Lan for such a long time, really throughout their careers and your own. How would you begin to describe them? How would you begin to describe their relationship to art and design for viewers who aren't so familiar? They did not accept to be part of design, really. Um, François was a sculptor, animal for animals mainly, and Claude was working with nature, natural things, objects he found in the in the garden mainly. So design was not their purpose. François Xavier created the concept of art of sculpture with a use. A sculpture with a use is um, kind of homage to surrealism, because they worked uh, at Galerie Jonas during their uh, youth with Max Ernst, uh, I mean, beside Max Ernst, 
Magritte, Brauner. They were totally in relationship, good relationship with uh, surrealism. So the surrealism uh, create this kind of relation between the sculpture and the use. That's the humor also of François Xavier, who was a friend with Marcel Duchamp, and he had something from the Dada period in his mind. And uh, when he created this sculpture with a use, he did not think of design. He was thinking of creating a, an approach of the collector who can use, manipulate the sculpture and have a new kind of relationship with the sculpture. So it was totally different than the concept of design. We arrived in their life, I think, during the 90s, when the difference was created by the market, by the museums, between art and design. Personally, I start with art and design uh, in the 70s and uh, 75, and I start um, creating multiples with important artists like the Chirico, Manre, Sonia Delaunay, and Lalanne and Nikit Sanfal. So we met, I met with uh, Lalanne in the middle of the 70s, and we never stopped working together, even when I built my own gallery in 88. Amazing. That's quite a list of people that you worked with as, as well. Many stories to tell, I'm sure. Um, can I ask you a kind of simple question? Um, what led to the Lalanne's interest in animals? specifically. It's such a striking feature of their work and so unusual for their period to take that animated approach. What was it that led to them to that iconography? I, I always hear François saying, animals do not lie. I think he found the truth and clothed in nature. They, they, they found an, a real important essential relationship with animals and with nature. It was, I think it was deep in their uh, soul and in their culture. The culture of François comes from La Fontaine, Ovid, Rousseau, and also from Poussin, Chardin, Ingres, Brancusi, Magritte, so, uh, and Matisse, sorry, Matisse, mainly. So um, he was really dedicated to the, the animal and they never did, he did some portraits of people, but very, very few. The animal was really his um, way to express his art. This rhinoceros, that's a very important work. He start, he did many different uh, models during the late 60s, 70s, till the end of his life. This one was created in uh, 1992. That's the last model he did but he was cast in eight copies because the other uh, rhinoceros desk were um, unique works. This one was created in uh, eight copies. And um, you can see the extraordinary perfection of the line because he's a really classic artist with a sense of perfection of line. And you can imagine the perfection of the mechanism also even if it looks a little like that. You know, it's made by hand. The original work is made by hand, well by his hand, and everything was made by hand in his atelier, in his studio. I think you're so right, Jean-Gabriel, to draw attention to the draftsmanship of that work. The contour or silhouette of it is just so taut, and I can see 
yeah. uh, how Matisse and other artists would figure into that. Let's talk about one of the masterworks of Claude Lalanne, um, from her Chapat series. There's no way around it. It's basically a cabbage head with chicken legs and obviously extremely surrealist. Um, and yet so potent and powerful and memorable. And I, I wonder uh, what you make of this uh, extremely important work of hers. You know, first, Claude was always having a choupat on her table. And it was changing because she did a new choupat, uh, but few in her life. I mean, always unique, normally always unique, because she worked from the uh, electrolyse bath, copper bath with electricity. So this bath of copper took the form and the, the place of the real cabbage. And uh, she did many different sizes. And it was after she was, she had to assemble everything to put everything together. And she put the cabbage in the sixties uh, on uh, chicken legs. I think it was start, it was a kind of homage to Magritte, something like that, you know, during the sixties when she was at Yola's gallery. And it became her symbol, the symbol of her work and uh, surrealism work. It's an homage to la nature, and at the same time, it's a real extraordinary, uh, beautiful sculpture. And um, she did after, in, at the end of her life, she, uh, she did the, the cabbage legs, the choupat, in bronze. Um, let's bring Florent Janiard uh, into the conversation from Sotheby's. If there's a, a particular um, work or series of works by Lalande that most people know above all, it is their sheep. They're so famous, so iconic, so associated with their practice. So the Mouton Lalande. Could you speak a little bit about that family of designs? Uh, for the sheep, it's iconic. It, the, it's iconic animals for, for François-Xavier Lalande since uh, 65 to until his death. He, he never stopped to, to design different versions of the, of the ship. He used wool, bronze, epoxy stone, stone with different design. But uh, it's true that the woolen ship remind the most desirable. So it's iconic. And uh, first major collector like Gunther Sachs, Valentino, Rothschild family, or Yves Saint Laurent were not wrong because, of course, if humor is present, uh, there is also a certain idea of nature, protection, and uh, certain idea already in the 70s because we don't need to forget that uh, Claude and François-Xavier Lalanne live in the countryside one hour from Paris in the middle of uh, fields, forests, and animals. So there is already a certain awareness of this is artwork of François-Xavier. Yeah, it's an incredible sensitivity as well, you know, the, the sort of deadpan charm of those objects. And it, it, they, <laughs> in a funny way, they've occupied that imagery so completely that if you see sheep on a rolling hillside in the country, you think of the Lalan now, <laughs> or at least I do. You know, it's, it's like they've become so identified with it. Um, okay, well, we now have the privilege of welcoming Julianne back to the conversation. And Julianne, I get to ask you about your house okay. <laughs> or your, your domestic spaces uh, and yeah. how, you, how you approach living with design. Can you say a little bit, first of all, uh, this is such a hard question to ask, can you say a little bit about your taste, about your style? What do you go for in design? What are you looking for when you buy an object? 
I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I'd say that like right behind me, there's a there's a Nakashima coffee table like in my in my living room, and that I think that was the first major piece of of furniture that I, I ever bought. And and of course, I was attracted to it because of its materiality. And, and I'm talking about somebody who 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 was inspired and brought the natural world to his work. I mean, I think Nakashima is a great example of that. So. I'm somebody who's very self-educated in design. I learned by just like going to galleries and talking to people and people being very generous and, and teaching me. And so I, I learned to just respond to what I liked. And I, I like a certain materiality. I like a feeling of, of patina. Um, I like some I like some personality, but I don't like it to be, you know, overwhelmingly like I couldn't deal with Memphis. That was too much personality for me. <laughs> Um, you know, I, right. (laughs) But, you know, so I, I think it was, I I respond to pieces that have a a wonderful shape. I like a sculptural quality. I like Perriand and Genere and, uh, the Borlach brothers and Pierre Chapeau and Pavo Tainel and Raul Guy and Karl Abak and Nana Dietzel. And, you know, so these are, these are people who I felt were doing such interesting work in terms of their craftsmanship and in terms of the materials that they worked with. Like, I feel like I, I learned more all the time and I learned so much from, from gallerists and dealers who, who are showing these pieces and educating me about them. Would you say also that the story of a piece is very important to you, the story of that designer or that specific object? Is that something you look into deeply? I, yes. Usually after I have responded to um, someone's work, I kind of, I look into their story. I think it's interesting to me that Pierre Chapeau is uh, someone who, who still, you know, his, his, operation is, is still happening. It's still his family that's manufacturing those pieces. And you feel it. It, it feels like, it feels very personal. It feels like a family. It, it, it has a, a realness to it that's that's appealing to me. You know, so I'm always interested in who these people were, what their philosophies were. I think it's interesting that, I, you know, Charlotte Perrion's whole history is really, really fascinating. And yeah, you get, you, you do, you get drawn to the people as well as the objects. And I don't understand this thing. I mean, I know that you all live in this world, this this delineation that people feel but th- that there is between art and design. For me, I think the more the the more interaction you can have with an object, the more value it has. So I don't understand why why so many people in the world feel like if somehow it's a useful object, it therefore is less valuable. So I would love someone to explain that to me. Oh well, I can only say amen yeah. to that. I really, I, mean, I, I think that. Fortunately, I think more and more people are coming to that viewpoint and the old hierarchies are falling apart, really. Um, One more question. Can you just say a little bit about how it's changed over time for you working with design? I mean, you've talked a lot already about how you've educated yourself and learned from gallerists and so on. Do you look at it differently now than you did when you first encountered that Akari lamp? Has it really changed for you? Yes, of course, because you slowly become educated. You know, you just see, you see more and more, and the more you see, the more your taste evolves. And, and you know, the, the person who first saw, you know, the, the young person who saw that first Akari lamp is not, is not the person who ever encountered Ruhlman, you know, for example. <laughs> like, I wouldn't have come in, 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 to, in uh, contact with that at all. So, so you do, um, you become exposed to more, and you become interested in things. And I think also... 
you know, we haven't talked a lot about fashion and design either. I can remember when there was a stickly craze in the United States. You know, I remember um, when there was a Biedermeier craze. I mean, does everybody remember the Biedermeier craze? And and somehow like that's disappeared. So so I'm sort of I'm interested in that too, the way it kind of evolves just in terms of your personal taste and also how how fashion and design changes. Yeah, and where those trends come from and sort of what's yeah. what lies behind them. That's the sort of thing design historians like me get super fascinated by. Uh, yeah. So it's not, it's not just when the things are being made, it's also when they come back into view and yes. start to become appealing again. Yeah. Okay, what a great ending. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. My huge thanks to Julianne Moore, Dakin Hart, Jean Gabriel Mitterrand, and Florent Janiard. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us and to have this great conversation. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 1, which features conversations with guests including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live. 